And we will uh, engage that all the more here this morning as we pick up our study of the Gospel of Luke. The Lord arranged it in such a way that we're going to be able to finish our study of this Gospel and lead us right up into Easter and, and get right through it, and, uh, and it's all working out. So uh, this is kind of helping us prepare the way as we consider the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But I'd like to just begin this morning by opening our time in prayer. Would you just join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that we get to sing these great songs and be reminded of his authority and his rule and his reign. Lord, may that anchor our souls this morning. Lord, as we jump into this text, that I pray that it would just anchor us all the more, that it would cause our minds to be just fixed on the greatness of Jesus, and that might carry us through our day, our week, our year, and through to eternity. And so, Lord, may this now grip us this morning the way that you've designed it. In Christ's name, amen. During uh, the month of March, there's a big sporting event that takes place for basketball fans, right? March Madness. Some of you are March Madness fans, and you get into it. I never, ever got into it. I don't follow it at all. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's the college basketball playoffs. And, uh, and it's a unique kind of playoff system because all these teams get to participate, and it gets down to a single national champion, champion team. And I've, I've never followed it. I've never done the brackets. I, in fact, the first time I actually heard about the brackets, I mean, I didn't pay attention to it at all was about 20 years ago, uh, a little over 20 years ago, when I was doing student ministries, and I went into the student room, and one of the kids says, you know, hey, have you done your brackets? I'm like, for what? What are you talking about? You know, it's March Madness. Have you done your brackets, where you pick all the teams, and you figure out who you think is going to win? And I said, I don't follow college basketball. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he says, well, well do, you, do you have a team that you think will win the national championship? I said, I don't even know anything about any of the teams. I know nothing. And he says, well, you got to pick one. Everyone's got to pick one. I said, well, tell me about the teams. So I proceeded to go through the different teams and, and kind of unfolding them. And, and, uh, and I got to this team, Duke. And he said, well, you know, there's this team, Duke. And, and, and I said, do they have a chance to win? He says, well, yeah, yeah, they're a good team. I said, uh, who are some of the players? Maybe I know them. And he said, well, they have one of their superstar guys is this guy named Christian Leitner. And, and I didn't know who he was. But I said, wait, that's the team I'm going to follow. And he said, why? Now, this is a poor attempt at humor. Any team led by a Christian is good enough for me, was my theory, right? Got a player named Christian Leitner, right? So you figure, if he's your lead player, his name is Christian, I'm following Duke. That's who I followed. And so I picked Duke to win it all. Now, how many of you are March Madness fans, history, March Madness? It's okay, you can admit this. Okay, there's like people like you're just kind of, it's be bold, come on, are you a fan? Okay, thank you, all right. So if you're a historical fan, this was 1992 that I picked Duke to win. This really doesn't mean a whole lot to me other than this one moment. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Duke makes it down to the final game. They're down by one point. Two seconds left in the game. They inbound the ball half court. To who? Christian Leitner. 
He gets the ball. He turns around, shoots, scores. Duke wins. My team won. I'm yelling, Duke, Duke, right? That's all I know, right? I don't know if I've watched a championship game since 1992. Theoretically, I'm 1-0 in all my picks. I'm undefeated in picking the national championship. But afterwards, that's a big moment, pretty exciting win, you know, and, and always goes down. If you watch March Madness, they kind of show the, the, the highlights of that game. It was a, it was a big win. And, uh, and when they interview the coach, this always struck me. The coach made this comment. I cannot pronounce his last name, so everybody calls him Coach K, right? Because anyways, you, if you're college basketball, you know what I'm talking about. It's a complicated name. So Coach K, he says, he says, uh, my job as a coach was never to motivate my players. I didn't, you know, during that moment, my job wasn't to motivate them. If they weren't motivated, I had the wrong team. But it was my job to remind them of the importance of this moment and who they were in that moment. And if I could remind them of who they were and the importance of that moment, that would fuel them all the way to victory, as opposed to just trying to come up with a motivational speech. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking about this passage this week, and I was, I was just considering the fact that as Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is, is writing this letter, he's not just trying to like motivate Theophilus, who he's writing to. He's not just trying to give him a little pep talk. Jesus is cool. Stay with him. Come on, you can do it. It's, it's not that kind of a thing. He's really trying to remind Theophilus of the importance of what Jesus did. And especially as we get to this moment right before the cross. We're here in Luke chapter 22. And, and from 22 on, for, for the majority of the rest of the book, is the focus of the night before Jesus was crucified. He's sitting down and unpacking the importance of this moment. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about coaching, and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I like that thought. I don't need to be motivated to endure. I need to be reminded of the importance of what Jesus did. I need to be reminded of the importance of the work on the cross. I need to be reminded of how powerful he is and how I am connected to him and who I am in light of this. And what Luke does is he unfolds for us some things. He shows us, listen, I want to show you how powerful Jesus is. Evil and Satan cannot stop him. I want to show you how powerful this moment is that your sins have been forgiven and you're now part of the new covenant. He is incredible for what he accomplished on the cross. You're connected to it. I'm going to show you who you are and the importance of this moment. That's what Luke does. And it's very powerful because, because as, as we think about these things, it, it ushers into our brain this, this thought. We are anchored to something so much more significant than we could ever realize. That we are protected by Jesus Christ. That our sins are completely forgiven. And we have union with God that can never be broken. Now, just think about that for a while. 
You're protected and forgiven and have a union with God that can never be broken. That's who you are. That's the importance of this moment. That's what this passage unpacks for us today. And, and I want us to go through this. You see your outline. I've just kind of broke up the outline based upon just some of the themes that, that Luke seems to be unpacking for us here. You've got Jesus protecting his children. You've got Jesus fulfilling the Passover. Jesus ushering in the new covenant. But, but here's what I really see here is the power of Jesus to protect and the incredible power of Jesus to forgive and the incredible power of Jesus to, to unite me to him and give me a new identity in this new covenant. And these themes are so important in that, that my thought today was, I don't want to motivate you with a rah-rah speech about Jesus. I want to remind you of the importance of the moment what Jesus did for you and then remind you who you are in light of that. And hopefully that will be what you meditate on when things get rough and tough. Speaking to John Garber yesterday, we visited him in the hospital and, uh, and, and we were just reminding each other, God really is real and he really does protect us from the things we don't see. And he really is in charge. And you really can anchor yourself on that. You really can hold on to that. And that's the kind of stuff that I think is meant to carry us and drive us deeper than just motivational speeches. So let's look at this here this morning. Let's look at the first thing that he says, that Jesus protects his children. Let's look at this. And and what I want to show you is just how bad and ugly things have gotten in the world right before the cross, how horrible things were. And then I want to just show you how powerful Jesus is in the midst of this. Okay, let's look here. Follow along here as I read here in verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now I love the fact that Luke kind of puts in there, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, and then he tells you what that is. It's the Passover. The reason why I think Luke puts this in here is that this creates an interesting little conflict that's here. You know, this is the Passover. The Passover was brought up, you can see it in Exodus 12, right? You know what happened. The plagues were coming upon Egypt. All these plagues were coming upon Egypt, and they got to the final plague, right? And God is going to show Pharaoh how powerful he is, and so God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn male children, firstborn male animals. Death is coming. I am going to just, just wreak havoc upon this this, on this nation, but Jewish people, if you will kill a lamb and put the blood on a doorpost, the angel of death will pass over your house. And so that's what happened. The angel of death passed over their houses, those who had killed the lamb. And then he said, God said in Exodus 12, I want you to celebrate this every year. I want you to remember that I spared you from death and I delivered you from Egypt as a result of that. I want you to know that you've been spared from death and delivered from bondage. And I want you to remember this. Now, part of the ceremony was that they were to go through their house and clean out their house of all the leavened bread. That's why they call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You had to go in there and clean out all of the leaven. That symbolized something. That symbolized repentance. It symbolized confession of sin. It symbolized getting all the junk out of your house. So, you're at the feast... This is how perverse things were the time of Jesus. It's the time to be cleaning out the unleavened bread in their house. So you can imagine these religious leaders in their homes participating in the cleansing process 
which should point them to the fact that they should repent. But as they're cleaning and going through the ceremony, they're thinking, how in the world can I kill Jesus? How could we do this and not make things bad on ourselves? They're thinking about murder during the time that they should be thinking about repentance. This is what Luke is pointing out to us here. This is just how perverse it had gotten. Now, they had feared the people. Jesus, of course, was very popular. He had just entered in days ago. People are shouting Hosanna. They believe he's the Messiah. Jesus' practice was in the daytime, he's hanging out right there in Jerusalem in the temple. He's teaching. He's doing things. At night, he would retire to an undisclosed location, and no one could find him. The leaders are thinking, we have got to figure out a way to arrest this guy without getting in trouble, without, without turning the people against us. How do we get them at night? They're churning this. This is what's obsessing them during the Passover. Not repentance of sin, not turning their heart towards God, not remembering that God showed them mercy and delivered them from bondage. Instead, it is absolutely based upon their selfish desire for murder. Now, they have a problem. They're going to need supernatural intervention if they're going to get Jesus Now notice I did not say divine intervention. I said supernatural intervention. They can't get Jesus. He's hiding at night, and in the daytime he's around the people. But they got supernatural intervention. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Satan now has overrun Judas. He's taken him over. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that meant. Other than this, all of a sudden, Satan now, or I mean Judas now, is so overrun by evil that he thinks to himself, I can help these religious leaders. You know, sometimes we we think of the fact that that Judas was approached by the religious leaders and that they offered him money. The reality is that the plan to betray Jesus was all Judas's idea. That's what the text says. Satan came over him. And suddenly he comes up with this idea. I can tell you guys where he sleeps at night for a little cash. I know you want him. You got some money? They're saying, yes, we will pay you. So he comes in to negotiate. So now here's what you have. You have this perverse group of people contemplating murder during the Passover. That's just how perverse their hearts were. You have Satan entering the heart of Judas and Judas now coming up with a plan to betray Jesus. And now they have the plan set. This is an incredibly powerful, evil, wicked moment. Here's the question. Do sinful men and Satan themselves have control over Jesus? No. No. Even though Satan has an inside man, one of the twelve, who's a spy for the evil ones, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He's in complete control. You see, Satan, doesn't matter how bad it is, doesn't matter how wicked it is, it doesn't matter at all. Jesus is in complete control. 
This, by the way, is what anchored Joseph's life. Remember Joseph way back in the Old Testament? His brothers did these wicked things and sold him off into slavery, and all these horrible things happened to him as a result of what his brothers did. And his brothers, after his father died, and the brothers are before Joseph now that he's in a position of authority, and what do his brothers say? Oh my, he's going to kill us. And Joseph says, I'm not going to kill you. God's in control. Yeah, you're wicked and evil. Yeah, you had these wicked, evil thoughts to try to do away with me. But do you understand that God overran your evil and used those evil intentions to carry out his purposes to save your life and the lives of thousands of people? You know how powerful God is? How in the world could I kill you? God's in total control even of this moment. See, that's that kind of stuff that anchors you instead of thinking, oh, Satan's winning, evil's getting bad, what's going on with our culture, it's all falling apart, woe is me, the sky is falling, build the bunkers now, hide out till the rapture. And God is saying, what? I am in total control of every single moment. That's a good spot for an amen, right, isn't it? Let's try that again. God says, I'm in total control of every single moment. Right? That's a hallelujah moment, maybe. Right? Keep those in mind, okay? I mean, those are, those are powerful moments. So, let's see the control of Jesus. And what I want to show you is that Jesus protects two things. He protects the disciples, and he protects the plan. God's plan. Okay? Because he's not going to allow those soldiers to come too soon. He's going to make sure everything's in control. He's going to protect his disciples. He's going to make sure that he dies exactly at the moment the Father designed for him to die. He has control over the brakes and the gas. Satan doesn't. Okay, so now let's look at the protection here. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. It's a Passover. On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Okay, Passover time. Everybody's gone home to their families. Except the disciples. Jesus pulls them out of their families and they have their own meal, which I always thought was very unique. Pulls them out. This is a good time to arrest Jesus. We already know religious leaders don't care about the Passover. But Jesus doesn't say, we're having the Passover at that guy's house over there, and that's where we'll be. He just tells two of his disciples, listen, go make the Passover, go prepare it. And they say, uh, where? And he said, well, let me try to help you understand this, okay? I want you to prepare it. Where do we do it? Now let's look at verse 10. Notice he doesn't tell them the location. Notice verse 10. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So these two disciples have the job of getting the meal ready getting all the work. They have to get it done before sundown, right? So he says, you're just going to go into the city and you're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. Now, that's your sign because men didn't carry water in those days. Women did. 
right? So women would go to the well, they carry water on their head, right? And it was, a, it was the woman's job to carry the water on their head, you know, back to the house. In this case, they're going to walk into the city and they're just standing there. Hey, there's a guy with water on his head, right? Kind of got the jar. And so they say, just follow him. So they follow him. It's like this covert operation. They follow the guy. They get to the guy's house, and then they're supposed to say, where's the room? And he says, it's over there. You go over there and you prepare it. Why all the secrecy? Judas is not to know where this is going to happen. Jesus will take the rest of them there. He'll take the ten with him. Why? Jesus knows that Judas is betraying him. Jesus knows the plan. This is his plan. He knows what's happening. He's not, you know, he didn't, he didn't get down on a, on a, on a, in pray and say, oh my, Father, what happened? Satan entered Judas' heart. The whole thing's messed up. No, he knows. This is his plan. But he's going to protect the situation. He's going to protect the timing. And these guys walked in the city. They saw a guy carrying water. They followed him to his house. The guy told them where to go. And they began the work of preparing all the stuff for the Passover meal. Now, what do I see there? What do we see there? What you see there is something very important. Jesus is in complete control. He's protecting the disciples from the arrest happening too soon. And he's protecting the plan of God. What God had designed to happen will happen. Jesus will be arrested at the moment God designed for him to to, to be arrested. He will be crucified the very hour he was designed to be crucified. Not a minute earlier, not a minute later. He's in complete control. When my mom was very ill and 19 years ago or so, had a bad heart situation and was in a hospital, and it was a whole bunch of errors from the doctor. Doctors messed up in an operation. She died on the table. They had to resuscitate her. It was really just a rough, horrible situation. And, and uh, then she came out, and they, there was bad medication. It was just a whole series of things, just absolutely just, you know, the hospital just blew it on many levels, and we had to take her out of this hospital because of just how bad the mistakes were. And, uh, and my mom was laying on the bed, and, and I walked into the room. We got her into a new hospital, and there was a, God provided this great surgeon who patched her back up again, and, and, uh, and she was kind of off and running to a certain degree. But I remember after the second or third operation, she's laying there. I said, you know, Mom, that other hospital, they tried to kill you, but they couldn't because God is in charge of your life. You will not die one minute too soon, and you will not die one minute too late. They did their best, but they ran up against God. And God said, nope, I don't care. You know, and they had a whole slew of things that went wrong, from ripping an artery out of her heart and dropping it on the floor to all kinds of just horrible, horrible things that happened to her from incompetence in the hospital, but yet she's still alive. 19 years later, she's still alive. Why? She's not going to die one day sooner or one day later. God's in charge. All right. Yeah, exactly it. That's what I see here protecting his children but now there's more luke wants you to see not only the power of jesus to be in control of the moment but he also now wants to show us how he fulfilled the passover and you need to see this because this is where you begin to see even more stuff to anchor your life okay let's look at our second point jesus fulfilling the passover look at verse 14 and when the hour came he reclined at a table 
and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So now it's Passover time. I love this statement. Notice what he says in verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I think it's not too far. You can kind of embellish that this way. Jesus is saying, you know, ever since I got here, I've been waiting for this one. We've been together three years. We've had three Passovers together. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one right before my death. I've been waiting for this one. This, I can't, I have, you know, that's the idea. He's earnestly desired me. He's like longing, like just cannot wait. Just absolute thrilled. Cannot wait. I am pumped about this Passover. And notice, I can't wait for this one before I suffer. This is, this is, I've been looking forward to this. And then he makes this little statement. I'm not going to eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, it's a cryptic statement. We're going to try to unpack what that means. In order to do that, let me kind of explain to you something that's unique here that you might miss uh, if you don't understand what's going on. This is the Passover meal. Therefore, what's going on here is Jesus is altering the Passover meal from the very beginning. He's altering it. He's doing something very unique with it. Now, at the Passover meal, there are questions that kids ask. If you've ever been to a Seder, you know what I'm talking about. There's questions that kids ask, and, and then, and then uh, they get answered at the table. Now, there's one overarching question that, that governs all the four questions that kids ask at a Passover. And the overarching question is this. What makes this night different from all the other nights? That's the question they're trying to answer. Why is Passover different from all the other nights? Now, the traditional answer would have been, we were slaves in Egypt. God brought judgment of death, the angel of death. And because of the, the blood of the lamb, we were spared from death and we were delivered from Egypt. That's what makes this night different from all the other nights. We remember this. We remember being spared from death and delivered from Egypt. And so the questions about the Passover are all about that event in the past. Now, they're at their Passover meal. There's no kids there. It's just the apostles. And so Jesus says, guys, I've been looking forward to this Passover with you. And this is the last meal we're going to have until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He stands at this moment of the Passover, and rather than look into the past, to Egypt, he now looks forward to the kingdom of God. He shifts the Passover emphasis from the past to the future. This is where Passover changes. And he says, guys, this is an, an incredible moment. Now the question is, what does it mean that it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God? What's he saying when he makes that statement there? How does this unpack? What's, what's the heart of it? Let me kind of explain this to you. First, just to get an understanding of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God, you can summarize it this way. It's the rule. It's the reign of God over everything. He made the world. He created the world. He rules the world. He reigns in the world. He sustains the world. His kingdom is his rule. Now, God has allowed his kingdom to kind of 
his rule, I should say, to ebb and flow. He gives Satan a little bit of latitude, but he doesn't give Satan total control. He gives us a little bit of latitude, doesn't give us total control. Right? I've got, I got a small amount of latitude in this world. Right? I can knock this pulpit over if I want to. Right? I could sing a song right now. I could dance. I got a little bit of latitude. But no matter what I do, I cannot stop the plan of God. Right? Even if I launch this thing back here and break a bunch of instruments and stuff, all that's happened is I've launched the pulpit and broken instruments. And maybe got Ken upset because I broke his guitar. Okay? But the plan of God's not been thwarted. Whatever little control I have does not stop the fact that God's kingdom will come, God's plan will be carried out, God will do his work. Amen. All right. Yeah, let's just throw those in. When I do that, God does it all. That's just, you know, because it's important. We want to we emphasize that. Okay, so God's in this control. He's doing this. That's his kingdom. Now, his kingdom, we discover, kind of ebbs and flows in the world. What I mean by this is that sometimes God manifests this kingdom in a powerful way. and Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He raises the dead. Sometimes things like that happen. There are times when suddenly, you know, kings are knocked down and other kings are put up. And Saul is taken out of the way and David's inserted. And there are times when, 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 when God allows the Chaldeans to rise up, the Babylonians to rise up and, and wreak havoc upon Israel. And, and, and sometimes the evil looks like it's winning, but it isn't. And, and, and yet, it, so you have that kind of thing with the kingdom of God. But the bottom line of the kingdom of God, it is the rule and the reign of God in the world. That's what the kingdom of God is. Now Jesus says the Passover is going to, we're not going to eat this again until the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What's the Passover? The Passover is a celebration of the lamb that was slain to save people from certain death and to deliver them from bondage. Now when God instituted the Passover, when God did this in Israel, his goal was not just to commemorate just that one event at that one time in history a few thousand years ago. His goal was to also to paint a picture and to show us what he was going to do for mankind. That he would save you from certain death, from his own wrath, and deliver you from the bondage of sin. That he would crush the head of the serpent, set you free, that the very power of the kingdom of God would be put on display and Satan's head would be crushed, the grip of sin would be removed, the power of sin would be, would, be, would be removed in your life, that you would be saved, that you would be set free, that you would be given the very life of God. And that suddenly, the very presence of his kingdom would not only rule and reign in your environment, it would rule and reign in your heart. That God would change your heart and align you with him. So Jesus is saying, listen, we're eating this now. But when the very power and the rule of God comes down and the Passover, what it pointed to, is fulfilled, it's going to be incredible. And then we'll celebrate a meal. Now the question is, what meal is he talking about? There's two thoughts about this. Some say that he's referring to Revelation 19. This big wedding feast at the end when all the believers are gathered around the big banquet table and we take it and we enjoy and we worship with him. Others say he's referring to the Lord's table when we're redeemed. And as the redeemed ones, we come and we gather and we don't celebrate Passover once a year. We come often to the Lord's table now 
Because the Passover has been fulfilled in Christ and we partake of the bread and the cup to be reminded of that lamb that was slain and the power of God that entered into the world and the power of God that broke the power of Satan and all that happened, right? So some say it's that. Some say it's the future kingdom. I say it's both, right? I say it's both. I say it's right now when we take of the table and I'm reminded of what Christ has done for me. And then one day, we're going to be gathered together, all of us children of God, will be gathered around a giant feast, a giant wedding feast, where we will be the bride of Christ and he will be our husband and we will be united to him in, a, in an eternal moment that will unleash the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be incredible. I think Jesus referred to all that. And I think the point that he's getting at is simply this. Guys, I've been so pumped about this Passover because things are about to change. We're no longer going to be breaking bread and remembering Egypt. You're going to be breaking bread and remembering me. And we're no longer going to be drinking a cup remembering Egypt. You're going to be drinking a cup remembering me. And that's why he says, look at verse 17. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, right, one first cup of wine probably in the meal, he had given thanks. He said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Here, you drink this. I'm not doing it now. changing it. Because here's what's going to happen. In just a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be hung on a cross. And then every single element of the power of God will be put on display. From his wrath to his mercy. From his love to his justice. Satan will be destroyed. The temple, the curtain will be torn in the temple. Salvation will be ushered in for the entire universe. And people, thank you, everybody from the whole world will be able to partake of the fruit of the vine. He says, guys, I've been so pumped about this Passover because the Passover's changing. It's changing, man. We're not standing looking at the past now. You're going to be standing and looking at the power of the kingdom of God. That's motivational, isn't it? That's just like, that's the kind of stuff that makes you realize when he says he's going to fulfill the Passover, you know what he's saying? He's making the power of God accessible to you. He's making it to you. He's saying, listen, the very power that conquered Satan is going to be to you. The very power that delivers you from hell is yours. The very power that unites me to, to my Father will be given to you and you can be united to the Father. The very Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is going to raise you from the dead. The kingdom of God and its power and its rule and its reign is yours. Guys, I've been so pumped about this Passover because things are changing, man. This is not just celebrating something that happened a few thousand years ago. I'm telling you now, man, the kingdom of God is coming. It's exciting stuff. But he's not done. Not only did he fulfill the Passover, everything that the Passover pointed to, he also ushered in the new covenant. Look at verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. We're no longer breaking this bread and thinking of Egypt. When we break this bread, I want you to think of me. Because you see, it's not a lamb that's going to die. 
that covers your sin for 12 months. It's the God-man that's going to die, that's going to cover your sins forever. And so when that bread is broken now, we're not going back and recycling the history of Israel. We are now breaking it and saying, the lamb, the lamb was slain. Not a lamb, the lamb. Not a bunch of lambs that were killed for a bunch of families in Egypt a few thousand years ago. One lamb for the whole world. One death for all. Broken. And then he says, without, right, we know the law says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. He says, listen, I'm going to shed my blood. And you know what that blood's going to do? It's not just going to forgive your sins. Notice what it is. It's the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Jeremiah 31 tells you what the new covenant is. God changes your heart so that you'll love him. He changes your heart so that his law would be written on your heart. Fills you with his spirit. And he makes it so that we can now live and serve and encourage one another as his body. We're forever united to him. And so, when we come to the Lord's table, we suddenly begin to realize we are not trying to remember the Passover. We're saying, guys, I don't want you to remember the Passover. I don't want you to remember Egypt anymore. I want you to come thinking of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And in fact, there's three things when we partake. And next week, we're going to partake of the Lord's table. And here are the three things that I want you to think about when you come to the Lord's table. Number one, it should remind you how I was saved from my sin. You didn't work your way out of it. You didn't earn your way out of it. Christ died. That's why you're saved. If you think, I haven't done enough to make God happy. I haven't done enough. You know, I still got to work hard. You know, heaven helps them that helps themselves. No, 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 no. You could never do it because the wages of sin is not good works. It's death. Right? You sin, you die. That's it. Christ died. That's how you were saved. But it also shows you what it means to be saved. It also shows you what it means to be saved because what it means to be saved is you are now connected to the power of the kingdom of God. You're not part of the new covenant. You've got this law written on your heart. You're a whole new creature. So when we pass those elements out, you're reminding yourself, man, this is what it means to be saved. Not only that, it reminds us of how much it costs to be saved. It reminds us that the wages of sin is death. But Christ paid that death. And we're, we're made brand new. And I believe he wants them to understand these things. Now let's look at how this passage ends here. He says in verse 21, But behold, <clears throat> the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Something interesting you can think about. Judas was there. He's drinking the cup. He's eating the bread. Judas is there. Jesus is about ready to wash his feet. Right? Judas is sitting there. And he knows who the Judas is sitting there. <clears throat> You can come, in my opinion, you can partake of this table. That won't save you. Sitting at the table with Jesus is not 
the way you're saying. He drank and ate. He ate the bread. He drank the cup. And yet it didn't save him because it's not rituals that save. It's Christ who saved, right? It's Christ who does it. His heart is filled with betrayal towards Christ. He hates Christ. He can drink as much of that wine, eat as much of that bread as he wants. He is still not with Jesus. God hates that kind of ritual. People's hearts are hatred towards Jesus. But notice what Jesus says. He says, now listen, in this room is the betrayer. What's he doing? He's letting them know several things. He's letting them know he's aware of the moment. He's aware of it. Second thing he says is, now listen, everything's still going to happen according to the determined time. What Judas does didn't unleash a bunch of mistakes. That's what he's telling his disciples. Right? When they discover Judas betrays them, you could imagine the conversations, right? Judas, what did you do? Now the whole thing's messed up. He's saying, no, it's not messed up. This is the plan. Okay? This is the plan. But thirdly, Judas, even though this is the plan of God, woe to you, man. Woe to you. You are in a bad, bad place. Judgment is coming your way. Because your heart is betraying the Messiah. But fourthly, he's telling them, now listen, I'm in control. I'm in control. Disciples are like, oh, who is it? You know, you can imagine the little side conversations at the table. You know, I think it's Thomas. He always doubts, right? You know, you can imagine these kind of things, right? He was never certain, right? Always question Jesus. Right? You can imagine these little side conversations going on. They're trying to figure out who it is. But here's the point. Jesus is saying, listen, if you trust in my blood, you become part of the new covenant. There's where your life is. It's in my death and resurrection. Not in the ceremony. It's in actually what I'm doing. And if you will trust in that, you get connected to the new covenant, a new heart, a new life. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So, I titled the sermon, Things You Need to Know to Be Ready for Easter. I want to give you some things. As you're thinking about Easter, you're preparing our minds for the cross, preparing our hearts for, 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 for Jesus and his mission and what he's done and who he is and the death and the burial and the resurrection, the songs we're going to sing. Let me just give you some things to think about. Just give you some big principles that I've pulled from this text to begin to get you thinking about who Christ is, the importance of this moment, and the kind of stuff that should anchor your mind. First thing is this. So we come to the Easter season. We come to the time where we're, where we're celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a few things. The first thing I want to show is the Easter time is the time when we remember that Jesus is the all-knowing and all-powerful God. The Satan does not hold ultimate control. He doesn't. Whatever goes on in the news reports in the world, right, and we're all inundated with it. It comes in on your phone. It comes in all the time. Everywhere you go, you're being inundated with what's going on in the world. It'd be easy to think that the world is descending into mass chaos. But I want you to remember something. Psalm 2, the Lord in heaven laughs. He knows what is to come. Will all the kings of the earth plot in vain? He's established his king on Zion. 
And he calls the kings of the earth. You better pay homage to him. Because when he comes, he's coming with judgment. Jesus is in control. He's the all-knowing. Second thing, pull from this. Jesus is the one who brought total redemption in and through the power of the kingdom of God. Your redemption is connected to the very power of God's kingdom. The power to overcome, the power to defeat, the power to, to, to rule and reign. Jesus is the one who ushered in the new covenant. Thirdly. And fourthly, Jesus is the one who allowed us to become partakers of this covenant. If Luke were our basketball coach, he'd gather us up and he'd say, guys, remember Jesus. Remember the importance of the cross. Because there are three really, I think, important take-home words we can pull from this. And the words are this. Number one, you are protected. Satan cannot harm you. You are protected. Second, you are forgiven. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, man, he fulfilled the Passover. He died. His blood was enough. And thirdly, you are set free. God writes his law. You're part of the new covenant. You can actually please God from your heart. That's who you are. So if you need endurance this week, if you need to hang on, if you feel like you're, you're, at, you're at your wit's end, remember Jesus. Remember this moment. Remember his power to protect power to forgive is power to set you free. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for Jesus, his authority, his power, his rule, his reign. God, may that anchor us as your children. May it cause us to, to stand firm, not on something wishy-washy on an unfirm foundation, but may we stand firm in the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. May that hold us until you take us home. In Christ's name, amen.